Hi everybody, JP here. Want to take a moment to tell you about St. John Associates. They're a great recruiting firm that was recommended to us by one of our listeners. They've been around for over 30 years and they match thousands of physicians with practices and healthcare systems across the country. They have an experienced team that works in all specialties, including neurosurgery and orthopedic spine surgery, and they have close connections with employers across the country. They will look at your CV, They'll match you with practices based on your preferences for geography and lifestyle. And all of this comes at no cost to the physician job applicant. So just visit them at stjohnjobs.com slash nspod to get started with your job search today if you're in the market. Again, that's stjohnjobs dot com slash nspod. Following that link will let them know that you found them through us. This is the Neurosurgery Podcast. Welcome back to the Neurosurgery Podcast. Uh, sitting down with a longtime friend of the show, a friend of myself and Dr. Wang, Dr. Ken Crandall, a spine surgeon at University of Maryland. Um, sitting together in person at the CNS meeting uh, here in San Francisco where, interestingly, one of the many splendid guest speakers was uh, Fly Girl, the uh, vaunted and now uh, very prominent on social media former combat pilot who gave a very inspiring speech, toward the end of which she asked everyone in the, att- uh, in the audience to raise a hand if any of the attendees were pilots. Some hands went up. It's a, somewhat of a popular hobby among physicians and surgeons. And then she uh, made the observation that doctors, surgeons, often make horrible pilots. And she said, you know what? You guys are great at surgery. I'm great at what I do. Why don't we both just stick to our lanes and everybody can get home safe at the end of the day? And I immediately laughed to myself because Ken here, I've known for a long time, is a pilot. He was a pilot before medicine. I, I think your your dad's a pilot, right? Everybody in your family? No, nobody's in nobody's a pilot oh, in my family. I, actually, I I wanted to when I was in high school. I wanted to um, be an Air Force pilot, and I thought I wanted to go to the Air Force Academy. Huh. And so I got involved in a in a volunteer organization called the Civil Air Patrol, which is a, an organization that's part of the Air Force that does a lot of search and rescue and disaster relief and they have a youth program as well which i was involved in back then and um, they offer flight training and so i actually controlled an airplane before i ever controlled a car i think Mm. i took my first (laughs) lesson at the age of 13 or 14. wow so and then i got my pilot's license when i was 18 and you know i've just been sort of a recreational general aviation pilot since then you know i don't have a ton of hours but uh you know it's something that i enjoy doing but i've really been you know sort of an aviation enthusiast you know my entire life yeah that that's really interesting i i found you the other day after that speech and i was laughing about it and i said ha ha can see she, she thinks you shouldn't be flying and you immediately said, well, yeah, doctors make awful pilots, right? So what's the background I don't want to create a blanket statement like that. No, but, but, you know, I th- there is a, I don't even know what the statistic is or whatnot, but there is this general understanding that doctors die more often in airplanes. 
And, and it is true, you know, there's been a lot of physicians that, that die in airplanes and who knows, maybe it's because, you know, physicians can afford airplanes. So they're flying more, they have mm. more time and, and, and money to, to become a pilot because getting a pilot's license is not inexpensive, but there's, I've, I've read an article before that, that talked about, you know, sort of the reasoning behind it. And I think that there's several reasons, you know, number one, we make life and death decisions all the time, you know, in our jobs. And, and it's not to say that flying an airplane is different, but it seems almost on the surface, like it's easier than doing brain surgery or spine surgery or heart surgery or, or something like that. So I think there's a little bit more complacency amongst physicians when they are flying an airplane, perhaps, Um, you know, maybe they're willing to take more risks because we take risks in our job every day. Um, On top of that, I I think another main reason is because physicians, you know, have the means to purchase, you know, nice airplanes financially. Um, They perhaps buy an airplane that is a little bit greater than their capabilities as a pilot. Mm. You know, there's, you know, higher performance aircraft out there that, you know, fly significantly faster than than the planes that we learn how to fly on. And so you get your pilot's license and then you go out and buy one of these higher performance aircraft. And, you know, there's a big difference between cruising at, you know, 120 knots and cruising at 170 knots things happen faster. You get to the airport faster. There's this term called getting behind the aircraft, which is, you know, the aircraft is going faster than what you're able to do in terms of your cockpit resource management, in terms of communicating, navigating, you know, and and doing all the things that you need to do before you land. And, you know, as you graduate to higher performance airplanes, that becomes more challenging. And and also as you graduate to more advanced flying, like instrument flying, um, you know, you could lose the ability to be, you know, with the aircraft and and fall behind. And and those are some of the reasons why, you know, aircraft accidents happen. Getting behind the aircraft, that's a really interesting concept. I think there's an obvious parallel we could draw to surgery and the more complex surgeries you're doing, making sure with each step as you get more towards that bottom of the pyramid or center part of the uh, procedure where the critical, quote unquote, critical steps are happening, making sure that you're set up for each one, that you know what you're gonna do, you have the equipment you need. Like There are obvious parallels there that we can get into. And I think a lot of parallels have been drawn in the past uh, 10, 20 years and in conversations we've had on the show between the checklists with piloting and now the checklists we have in the operating room. And uh, I think we've talked on the show and uh, with uh, Jim Harrop and some other people talking about quality, where we we talk about acceptable bad outcomes and what the margin of error is uh, with a surgery and like a complication rate versus an airline, you know, an aircraft accident, aircraft crash rate. And, And so there are all these parallels that we keep drawing, but I think one thing that we haven't got into yet on this show is the person in the cockpit or the person dictating the surgery, doing the surgery, and, and that parallel in the mindset between a pilot and a surgeon. And so 
that's really interesting to me that you wanted to be a pilot from such a young age before driving a car, like you said. So many people in medicine, oh, I want to be a doctor when, I, when they're six years old, or I want to be a brain surgeon when they're in high school, and they follow through with it. When you were a kid, your starry-eyed dream was to fly planes. And I don't know where I came up with that. I, I thought you had told me that all the guys in your family flew. I must, I must be thinking of someone else. But that's even more fascinating then. So without a background, without exposure, you as a young kid dreamed of flying, followed through on that dream. Where, where do you think that urge came from? Do you remember when you were a child what made you look up and, and want to be one of those people flying planes? I actually don't know. Um, you know, I did want to be a physician uh, when I was when I was young, when I was in elementary school, and I remember my parents actually talking me out of it and saying that the training is too long. Uh, you know, it's well, too you difficult showed to process. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, and then, you know, at some point, you know, I just thought I had become interested in the military. I thought that you know, becoming an Air Force pilot was was interesting to me. Granted, I wear glasses, and that back then. Uh, it was, I think, a little bit more challenging than it is now. Mm. Any military in your family? No, no military, no pilots, no doctors. Just genuine interest. <laughs> yeah, wow. just yeah. I guess I, I, you know, my there's a lot of engineers in my family, and I'm terrible at math, so I knew I couldn't do that. <laughs> um, but you know, I think that there's a lot of parallels between you know the training that we do in medicine to become a surgeon and and the training in aviation to become a pilot you know there's a, an apprenticeship almost and and there's very big differences in pilots between what I do which is just sort of a recreational general aviation pilot and a professional pilot yeah. uh, there's different standards there's different training regimens etc but you know the the thing that I'll say that's that's very similar um, you know between neurosurgeons and pilots is, is sort of this passion for it and you know we as neurosurgeons you know we eat sleep dream neurosurgery, right? The vast majority of us. I mean, we're all sitting at a conference right now at the CNS, uh, you know, during this interview. And, you know, we think about it outside of work. We talk about it. We, you know, it's not like we work in a marketing department, you know, at, at some company where you go home and that's your job and you don't like obsess over marketing when you're at home. Right. Pilots obsess over aviation. You know, they go to air shows on the weekends that they're off. They, you know, f fly their flight simulators at home. You know, they think about their planes. They talk to people. They go to, you know, flying safety seminars, you know, voluntarily. You know, it's, it's a passion and, and it's very similar. You know, the feeling that I get when I'm hanging around the aviation community and, you know, just talking to pilots is very similar to the feeling I get when I'm hanging around physicians and neurosurgeons. Yeah, that's really fascinating. Um, I wonder, because I have never flown a plane, I've never been involved in any of the training for that, but just from reading popular culture, reading a little bit of nonfiction about the process on the side, um, and perhaps you can disabuse me of, of any of these false ideas I have, but... I, I have heard of, in the process of learning how to fly a plane, you do a stall, your first stall, where you mm -hmm. go up and let the engine stall out, and it, it's, from what I've read, supposed to be kind of a rite of passage where you learn how to navigate that feeling of terror where the engine's off, and then you have to get it going again. So what, what's the truth to that? All right, so we'll take a step back. So a stall is not where the engine goes off. Okay. A stall is actually where the wing loses lift. 
Oh. So so you can do power on stalls where the engine is actually at full throttle. Okay. And you and that's to simulate what would happen because basically when the plane loses lift, it it you know usually loses a little bit of altitude, right? Yeah. And the two most dangerous. You, you fall. Uh, correct. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so we practice these, you know, at like 3,000 or above 3,000 feet. But the the purpose of stalls is you do ones with the power, the throttle all the way in. You also do with the throttle out. And it's to simulate the two most critical areas of flight, which is takeoff and landing, right? So if you're okay. taking off and you pitch the airplane up at too high of an angle and the throttle's all the way in because you're taking off, you could stall the aircraft and the aircraft could lose lift and you could crash and die. So it's teaching us to recover mm. from a stall. And if you don't coordinate the aircraft properly during a stall, then the, the airplane could go into a spin and that's even more harmful. Um, and then we do the power off stalls, which is not, we're not stopping the engine, but we're pulling the throttle back and putting the aircraft into the similar configuration for landing, so like flaps down, power back, ah. and then that's to simulate well what would happen if you got a stall when the aircraft's slower, because the airplane behaves completely different yeah. between those two stalls. Um, the other thing that we practice, so so stalls are scary. They they shouldn't be because um, you know it's it's. I mean, you can certainly get into trouble, but if you know what you're doing, you shouldn't. But it's just doing something uncomfortable with the airplane that you're not familiar with. So yeah, it's, and, and so it's it, foreign and, and it's a scary feeling. Being in the plane, does it feel different? Like the, yeah, the accelerate, you, you have a sense of yeah, falling, very, not a sense of gliding? Yeah, very, very, it feels very different when, when the aircraft stalls and there's like alarms that are going yeah. off and all that stuff. So especially for a new pilot, it's very scary. And we practice these you know, or you should practice them regularly. Um, but we definitely do them, you know, every couple of years we're required to go back up with an instructor and you always do stalls and, and things like that. And the, and the other thing that we, that, that you were kind of alluding to, which is not truly a stall, but we, uh, we practice, um, you know, uh, emergency landings due to an engine failure yeah. where we, where we throttle the air. We don't actually stop the engine because, there'd be a risk that you may not be able to restart right. it. You simulate uh, but, it. But we simulate it by basically pulling the throttle all the way back so it's not really producing much thrust, um, and then simulate you know, circling around a field or, or an airport and, and doing an emergency landing. And that's also you know, scary, but only so scary because you can always throttle you yeah. know, the engine back up and, and, and uh, you know, recover from it. Um, but I think that's, you know, the interesting, you know, thing is that we don't really practice emergencies in medicine, you know, and, and, and to get to back to, you know, talking a little bit about the checklist, which you mentioned earlier, you know, every emergency, you know, there's, there's really only so many emergencies that can happen in an airplane. I mean, yeah. there's, I mean, technically anything could happen, but the most common things, you know, engine failure, oil pressure low, engine fire, you know, all of these things, you know, there's checklists for every single one of them. And you may not have time to get to the checklist, but when you practice those checklists on a regular basis, then it becomes a little bit second nature. So hopefully when you're under the stress, you know what you should be doing. Hmm. But, you know, we don't have a checklist necessarily for like a CSF leak 
or an esophageal injury. You know, like there's, it's not like, oh, we perf the esophagus during an ACDF and the nurse like gets out the esophageal, yeah. you know, perforation checklist and, and goes down the list of exactly, you know, what, <clears throat> what should be done. So, you know, I think that in aviation, you know, things are arguably, they're a little bit more regimented. There's a lot more regulation. There's a lot more standardization compared to medicine. And, you know, everybody flies an airplane pretty much the same. You know, the procedures are pretty much the same. I mean, there's a lot of things that, factors that change, you know, weather and, you yeah. know, air traffic and, and, and different things like that. But in general, you know, most people, you know, take the plane off the same, most people end the same. Whereas if you give someone an L5S1 disc herniation, people will treat it differently, yeah. you know, based on their training. So there's less, less standardization, I think. So there's no how I do it articles for flying a plane. Not, not nearly <laughs> as much. No, yeah. no. <laughs> uh, that's a, that's really interesting to consider because we, we often talk about how, um, we want to have this sense of checklisting and we want to have a sense of standardization insofar as we can. But as you point out, a plane is a plane and people who fly professionally will fly the same sort of plane or maybe a few different ones, but the, the cockpits are all set up the same. And you translate that to an operating room where your OR could be set up the same and you have your trays every day, but the patient you're working on is completely different. The anatomy can, can be right. completely more different. Complex. And you yeah. can certainly, as you pointed out, get to the same place and treat the same pathology 12 different ways right. and, and have a good functional outcome. I wonder though, um, I'm still thinking about this, this stall training and, and the training for the emergencies because I think very common amongst all medical trainees and in particular surgical trainees, and then we'll talk about neurosurgical trainees, but the first time you personally face an emergency or you personally face a complication and you're doing a surgery and then there's big red all of a sudden and you freeze and you pucker and you worry, or you're on call as a junior resident and you pull up a scan and there's a massive subdural or somebody's herniating or somebody's not responding and you can't figure out why yeah. with your level of training and, and the studies you have thus far. So I wonder, this might be impossible for you to answer, but as you were going through training with your peers, did you notice any difference in your approach to these first-time emergencies because you had been through similar emergency training in your, in your piloting? Or do you think you responded to everything just like other people who had never been through no, that. I mean, I, I don't think I'm not enough of a pilot to, I think, have it gotcha. to the point where it had taken over how I face a problem or yeah. an issue. You I'm know, not saying, was, like, are you the Iceman? Well, no, no, but, but if I was, like, a professional pilot and I had gone through, you know, all the training that they do and, you know, the rigorous, um, you know, simulator training, we should talk about simulators as well, but, mm. um, you know, then maybe that would change who I am as a person and how I deal with problems. Um, but I wasn't, you know, anywhere near that advanced. I'm not anywhere near that advanced. So it, it, it didn't, didn't, you know, change who I was. If anything, you know, now who I am as a physician probably affects, you know, what I, what I am as a pilot. Mm -hmm. The one difference that I'll say, which is that 
if you make a mistake in the airplane, you know, you die as well, potentially, yeah. right? And, and I'm not trying to say that we as neurosurgeons are insensitive or we care less about our patients or causing complications because our life is not also at stake in the operating room. Right. But there's a different feeling, I think, when I'm flying an airplane where, you know, I know that, that if I make a mistake that I could also die. And I can't quantify it. I can't explain it. But there's, and maybe it's just because, you know, I've spent way more time in the operating room also than in an airplane. You know, I only have a few hundred hours, you know, in an airplane, whereas I have thousands of hours, you know, in the operating room. So I'm more comfortable in the operating room. But still, I think for even a professional pilot, you know, there's, there's always that thought in the back of your mind that if you make a mistake in the airplane that you could lose your own life in addition to the life of your passengers. Yeah, when I was a young child, I was terrified of flying. I was physically uncomfortable on planes. I didn't like the motion sense. I never enjoyed the loss of control, you know, like just being a passenger and Unlike being in a car, you know, the, the differences are obvious. You can't just step out and you can't see what they're doing up front. So you're really just blind to everything. And I was psychologically so uncomfortable with that whole scenario and the sense of danger until I got a little older. And for the sake of my pride, I won't say how old it, it took me to, uh, to get more comfortable with this. But I had a kind of a realization. and I had a moment of insight where I, I said, you know what? There's people up in the cockpit, and they also don't want to die. So j- mm-hmm. Just, as, you're, just right. as you pointed out, I, I, it took me far too long and far too old of an age to realize, like, they also don't want to die. They have families to get home to. They're, you know, we're all in this together. Then they're going to do their best. Um, so that, that was, that's a very interesting uh, aspect of it you point out, that there is skin in the game when you're piloting, mm-hmm. and there's pride and livelihood and reputation and moral fiber in the game when we're operating, but no physical threat to ourselves. Um, But you very rightfully brought up uh, the question of simulators, Mm -hmm. which obviously I I think we could say are far more developed in the world of aviation than in surgery, but I, I assume that you have some experience on both sides, so maybe talk a bit about yeah, that. Yeah, I mean, you know, I think that, that simulators in aviation now are, I mean, they're, they're phenomenal. I mean, they're, they're amazing. So, you know, one of, the, one of the concepts is that if you are a pilot, right, and you want to learn how to fly a different type of jet. So let's say you're a pilot for, you know, Delta and you fly an Airbus, you know, A320 or something like that. And then you want to go learn how to fly a 757, right? Um, The training that you do, you have to get something called a type rating to fly this different type of jet. Okay. Nowadays, that entire training is done in a simulator. So the the, you will not fly the actual airplane until you've done the simulator training and you're checked out. Like, and then so you the, go and the fly. first time you fly an airplane, you're showing up for work with passengers. I don't know exactly because I'm not in the airplane industry or Fair in enough. the airline industry, so I don't know if I don't know if there's some like one flight that you have sure. to do before you take passengers. And obviously, you have you know if you're a co-pilot, you have the pilot who's probably yeah. been more experienced with that airplane. But let's let's, let's take a step. Let's take a step back actually instead, and we'll say um, 
let's say that you bought, uh, you know, a, a Learjet, right? Um, you could go through, let's say you already, you know, knew how to fly jets or something like that. You could go through Learjet training completely in a simulator and then go out and fly your jet hmm. without ever, you know, stepping foot, you know, so it's, it's, it, the, it's so accurate to the point where you, when you're in these advanced simulators, you cannot tell that, I mean, the simulators move, you know, they, the yeah. optic, you know, the, every button is where it should be, you know, like you can't tell, you could, you forget after a little while that you're in a simulator. And so they can simulate emergencies that could never possibly be simulated, you know, in an actual airplane. Yeah. They can simulate every weather condition, every airport, every, I mean, I, it, it's, it's phenomenal, like training. It's phenomenal opportunity, and we don't have anywhere near that in medicine. You know, I mean, there's, you know, I would say that if anything, the most advanced simulators that we have in medicine are probably like the, you know, the anesthesia, critical care, you know, type simulators, because, yeah. you know, they have a real anesthesia machine. It's monitor-based. You know, it's monitor-based, you know, and they can change the parameters of the patient. You're not actually physically doing something to the patient, yeah. but... Um, Dis- discounting cadavers, discounting fresh cadavers even, we're talking Yeah, but even then, pure you know, cadavers don't bleed, you right. know, and what's what one of the main... Th- the tissue doesn't feel realistic, yeah. you know, it's... Cadavers are great for putting in screws and... and and you know understanding anatomy and anatomical relationships but it is not you know there is no difference between being in a simulator you know in in a you know a simulator for 737 and being in the actual 737 there's no difference and and the simulator arguably is better because you can simulate anything yeah. any 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 accident or i mean any any situation any weather anything and and so you know the only difference between the simulator and and the real airplane again is you know the fear of of death or the potential for death you right. know in the real airplane so maybe you take things slightly more seriously because you could actually you know die but but you know i don't know if we'll ever get to that level of simulation in medicine you know without like virtual reality or you know whatever but but it's uh it's something to certainly strive for to improve simulation because I think if you can, if you can accurately simulate a surgery, I mean, heck, you could practice the surgery prior to, um, prior to doing it. I have yeah. a very rudimentary sim- simulator. Um, I mean, it's a very advanced simulator, but it's nothing compared to what the airlines have yeah. on my computer at home. And if I fly to an airport that I've never flown to before, sometimes I'll simulate what it's like landing at that airport because Mm. you know some of the you know landscape and scenery is is similar you know and i fly the same type of airplane that i'm going to fly that day and i simulate a landing just to sort of see what it's like if i've never been there before to look at what the visual landmarks are out out on the you know and and that's just you know so yeah it'd be really neat if before i did you know a thoracic spine tumor if I could simulate that surgery, you know, with the patient's anatomy and MRI scan and all that stuff beforehand, even just to see what it's going to potentially look like when I'm in there, that would be something that would be very helpful. Yeah, I think you see more and more surgeons trying to utilize what is available in that regard. You know, you, you see 
people doing 3D printings of complex deformities so they can mm -hmm. hold it and look at it from different angles and really get a sense of the geometry, but being able to actually perform something um, in simulation, in rehearsal, if you will, before the real thing, I, I don't think anyone would uh, argue that that wouldn't be incredibly beneficial, especially to trainees or you know even junior junior attendings, but I, anyone who's going to do surgery on a living person, why wouldn't you want to rehearse it first? Right. Um, right. I do think it's also very interesting what you point out about the flight simulation, because you're right, if you take 100 hours of flight training in a simulator where you can say, here's five hours with these weather conditions, here's this emergency, that emergency, this emergency, that emergency, and compare that to if your training was just flying planes for long enough. You have to do so many hours to hit the probability of each emergency popping up or each weather condition popping up, right? right? And so much like in neurosurgery, the training is so long because what are the odds that you see this complication? What are the odds that you see that complication? For or sure. a rare surgery. Yeah. If, if, you know, if we do a transoral uh, for a high cervical surgery, it's a big production. Everybody comes out of the woodwork, crowds in the room to look around because it doesn't happen frequently. Yeah. So yeah. imagine if we had good simulators and, and you could say, well, today we're going to look at this, today we're going to look at that, where you don't have to just wait for the pathology to show up. Right, right. You know, I mean, and, and that's exactly what the aviation industry does. You know, it'd be like, you know, hopefully in your career, you never have a vertebral artery injury during an ACDF, mm -hmm. right? And, you know, if that were to happen, you need to deal with it. Well, in a simulator, you could have a vertebral artery injury every day. Yeah. And you could learn how to treat it and how to fix it. And maybe maybe if we had really advanced simulators, that's how surgical training would change is that, you know, you have to fix five vertebral artery injuries before you can be checked off on yeah. on ACDFs. And and um, you know, that's how the aviation industry works is, you know, there's certain checklists of of you know accidents and emergencies that have to be uh, completed before you can get you know checked off it's just like you know practicing stalls you know the airlines have you know you have to practice you know what happens if your rudder stops working what happens if your left engine fails what happens if your landing gear won't come down you know and those are things that the airline pilots practice over and over and over again before they can get checked off of fly that type of airplane yeah, well, we'll all just uh, cross our fingers for the Star Trek holodeck to come <laughs> exactly. out so, so we can uh, become neurosurgeons in two years. But right. uh, maybe to bring this to a close, uh, a little rapid fire, okay? So speed round, lightning round. Um, neurosurgeon, physician, uh, let's say middle-aged or older, gets bit by the bug, wants to start flying. Where do they start? Is there a book? Is there a video? What, what should people look into if they're complete novice? So almost, ev so almost every flight school has a like introductory program. Okay. So you just call up your local, air you look, look at your local airport. Most airports have flight schools um, and you just call them. They usually have like, you know, an introductory offer where for, you know, hundred bucks or 200 bucks or whatever you go, they take you up, you get to control the airplane a little bit. Mm -hmm. And then they talk to you about what it takes to do flight lessons and, and go through the process of, of getting a pilot's license. And then, yeah, there's all sorts of different textbooks. Now YouTube is, is I learn, you know, I learn about 
surgery on YouTube, but there's plenty of aviation channels out there, you know, about that, that show, you know, different piloting t- techniques and, and things of that nature. Okay. Hot take. Physician, never flown before, interested. Should physicians learn to fly? Yes. Everybody who wants to learn to fly should learn to fly. It's a wonderful hobby. It's, it's fascinating. It's fun. It keeps you on your toes. It teaches you different things. And, and anybody who's interested should certainly try. Okay. Best flying movie? Um, I mean, I, I do think that the, the newest Top Gun movie was done very well. I mean, it, nice. there were certainly things that were not realistic about it, similar to medical dramas. Yeah. Um, but the fact that they filmed the entire movie using real F-18s is pretty, pretty impressive. Yeah. And, and, and makes it a, an, an, excellent, an excellent movie. So my planned follow-up to that. Top Gun or Top Gun Maverick? It's Friday night, wife is out of town, you're alone, which I one think are you putting top, on? I think, I think Top Gun Maverick. I think it was, yeah. I mean, the original is the original, right? And that's always going to be classic. But I think that, you know, I, I like new technology, so I think Top nice. Gun Maverick was, was very entertaining. Okay, favorite flying experience? Or best flight you've taken? Um, so... Uh, a friend of mine who who uh, who owns a computer company uh, has a jet, and he let oh. me fly his jet, like in the in the right seat, because it, it's a it's a jet that's qualified for single pilot. So, so I was able to fly, like take off and fly his jet around, which was phenomenal. How fast did you go? Uh, probably. I mean, once we were up at altitude and we were traveling, you know, somewhere else. I mean, we were probably cruising at. 380, 400 knots. Is that the fastest you've gone? The fastest that I've controlled. Yeah. I mean, in commercial jets go a little bit faster. Okay. Have you been in a plane over the sound barrier? No. No. Would you like to? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yes. And then Oh, and I also did one of those zero gravity flights. Oh, yeah? Years ago. Yeah, where they do the parabolas and and, yeah. and uh get like about 20 seconds of weightlessness so that was that was not where i was it's not a piloting experience sure. but it's a it's a f- aviation experience and that was that was a life-changing experience okay um, uh if we haven't already mentioned it most terrifying experience flying a plane i would say the first time that i that i flew by myself and it's mm. it's called a solo and you do it usually around 10 hours into your training so you've gone up with an inst- which <laughs> does not sound like a lot of time you know but you the first 10 hours are basically the the instructor teaching you how to take off and land yeah um and you just practice it over and over and over again and then it's usually not necessarily planned for like you know tomorrow you're gonna solo but it's it's like you get to the point where the instructor feels comfortable and you you know you're usually out there practicing and then all of a sudden he says all right let me out of the plane and then you have to take off the plane and usually have to do through they they say that you have to do three you know three takeoff and landings you know after that but that's sort of a the initial you know rite of passage but i would also say that it you know the the very first time you land you're i mean that's so nerve-wracking and then you realize you can do it and then it's and then it's usually you know better after that that's great stuff all right ken 
Always a pleasure to talk with you. Always a pleasure to talk with you for the show. Um, if one person, after hearing this, goes out and even does one little class at a piloting school or feels the bite of the bug, this will be a success. No, I think that would be awesome. Great. All right. Ken Thanks, Crandall, man. back on the Neurosurgery Podcast. Thanks again. Yeah, thanks for having me. Disclaimer time. The opinions and ideas expressed in this show are solely those of myself, Dr. Wang, and our guests. They do not represent the opinions of any professional institution or organization. This show is for entertainment purposes only and does not constitute the giving of medical or legal advice. Listening to or participating in this show does not constitute continuing medical education or any other professional certification. It's just a show, everybody.